0: This week on The Roommate Podcast. If you see life as a battle between men who are the oppressors and women who are the victims, well, then you see nothing wrong with that. You say, "What's well, about time. Those men deserve it. They've been oppressing women for so long. They deserve to be oppressed. But these are kids. These are individuals who are not guilty of anything. So this us versus them, life is a battle between good groups and evil groups. This is craziness in a multi-ethnic secular democracy for us to promote this group versus group thinking. This is going to destroy
1: us. What's good, everybody? This week's podcast is brought to you guys by our sponsors over at Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and more. So whether you're returning to a lifelong passion, challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes just for you, and we've been telling you guys so much this year. Make sure you hop on Skillshare. So many dope, amazing classes. You guys will love it. So be sure to join the millions of people on Skillshare today with a special offer for the roommate community. You guys get two free months of Skillshare premium. Use the offer code roommates at checkout. Go to Skillshare.com slash roommates. Two free months Skillshare premium. Check it out. Trust me, guys, you won't be disappointed with all the things that you'll be able to learn. Yo, what's good, everybody? This is Afiz from the Roommates Podcast. And once again, we are in the beautiful, lovely city of New York. You know my birthplace and the birthplace to a lot of great thinkers and also the home to a lot of my favorite thinkers and thought leaders and entrepreneurs and business leaders and all that good stuff. And this week, guys, you guys are in for an absolute treat. I know I've been saying that a lot. <laughs> I've said it so much that you guys probably don't believe me. But this time, <laughs> I really, really mean it, guys. We are joined by one of the greatest thinkers in the 21st century (laughs) and this this man is somebody who I really have um, learned a lot from that his values his principles you know his work ethic and obviously the intelligence that he brings to the American civil discourse has really been inspiring to me so guys without further ado guys welcome to the show from the NYU Stern School of Business Jonathan Haidt Thank you, Hafiz. What a pleasure. What a nice introduction. Thank you so much. Did I get it right? NYU Perfectly Stern School of right. Business? Yep, Sounds good. I have, a, I have a history of butchering these things sometimes. Okay.
0: Hey, where are you from? Where were you born?
1: So I, my parents are Nigerian. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Arabic. You know, Hafiz means one who memorized the Quran and also means guardian in Arabic. And it's also a very famous Persian poet who has my name. Mm-hmm. I like to say he has my name. Okay. And uh, But I was actually born in Staten Island. Oh, excellent. Yeah, but I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Yes. So Jonathan, I know who you are, but our audience doesn't know who you are. Can you give us a bit of an elevator pitch synopsis about who you are?
0: Sure. Um, I'm a social psychologist. Uh, That means I'm a psychologist who studies how people affect each other. That's what I've always done since graduate school. Um, And my particular area is morality. I study how moral systems differ. And so in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, I began doing research on how Why it is that people in different um, nations and then it turned out social classes, why they think different things are right or wrong. And I was doing that, studying morality in India and Brazil and different places. But in the 1990s, I began to see that left and right in America were becoming like different countries, Mm. different U.S. history textbooks, different economics textbooks, different climate science textbooks. It's crazy how far apart, like different countries. So... I was always on the left back then. And I was very concerned I wanted to help Democrats win elections, um, but I was also concerned about the coming apart. And so uh, after 2004, after George W. Bush won for the second time, I said, I can't stand this anymore. I've, I'm going to really focus on political psychology now and treat it like cultural psychology. Um, so that's what I began doing. And in the process, in the process of learning about conservatives, I really tried to be like an anthropologist, studying them as they understood themselves in the world, And I realized, oh my God, you can't understand anything complicated until you listen to people from different perspectives. And so it didn't make me conservative, but ultimately it made me just step out and say, I'm not on any team anymore. I'm a social psychologist. I'm a social scientist. I need to just study this stuff. And that was back in like 2008, 2009, when I began writing The Righteous Mind. Since then, the polarization has gotten so much worse. We're in great danger as a nation. And so that's what I focus on now. What is happening to us in America and what can we do to stop ourselves from coming
1: apart? Well, I... Really appreciate you sharing that because one of the core values I told you about on our show is um, a diversity of thought. And the basic premise about that is that, you know, you need to have an open mind to listen, Mm -hmm. but a discerning heart to believe, you know, give people the opportunity to share ideas and then you can process it. You can synthesize it. You can accept what you want to accept and you can reject what you want to reject. But one of the biggest issues that we saw was that a lot of people were really unable to do so. Yeah. You know, a lot of people were unable to listen to and sit down with somebody who had a different opinion from them. Like, and that was probably the most difficult thing when we first started the show. Mm-hmm. Like, so, for example, um, most people don't know this because they, they haven't watched the real old episodes of our show, mm-hmm. but we w- there was one time where we brought in um, the P- Houston president of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. We brought him on to the show. And um, if you're not from... People are not familiar with Black Lives Matter. It's a very left organization. Mm-hmm. Very left organization. Some would argue far left mm-hmm. <laughs> with spe- sure. some of the views he was expounding. Mm-hmm. And so he came on the show. And like I said, we're very civil. We're very kind. And we let people... Um, able to share their ideas. And so a lot of people who were, you know, far left leaning and open to Black Lives Matter and their ideologies, started watching our show. Mm-hmm. Then the next oh, week... And then they, let you, <laughs> then they let you have it. Then yes. they were, uh, yeah. yeah. So then the next yeah. week, we actually brought in the communication coordinators for the Young Republicans. Mm-hmm. And so he came on the show expounding his ideas. Mm-hmm. And all the people from the week yeah. before who, <laughs> yeah. who were on the far left, they did not like that. Yeah. And then when, you know, the Young Republicans and the conservative people <clears> saw <throat> us talking to other Republicans, they were like, oh, you know, maybe these guys are on team red, yeah. and in the next week we brought in the president of the feminist society. <laughs> so you can only yeah. imagine what happened to those guys. Yeah, so right. one of the biggest challenges that we've seen is that people are just not even willing to talk to other people who are on the opposite side of the fence.
0: Yeah. So gosh, like that's I've got a bunch of comments for you. So first on your motto, open mind and discerning heart. Just tell me what you mean by discerning.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I really believe is that sometimes when people say, Okay. Accept um, my mm-hmm. beliefs. Mm-hmm. Or really accept me. They're really saying believe what I believe is true. Right. Uh-huh. So, for example, like if somebody says I can accept that Muslims are good people, but it doesn't mean I have to accept the rejection of pork. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're able to use your mind and critically discern mm-hmm. whether or not you want to receive this or mm-hmm. whether you want to re- reject right. it and to apply it to your own worldview. Right. So okay. what we're saying is like like it can go into your mind, mm-hmm. into your mind. But if you're going to believe it for yourself to be true, critically Think about it. Use your cognitive process to be able to analyze to make sure that what you're believing is true and you're not just reacting off of your feelings. Got it. Okay.
0: So that's a really interesting motto. Um, A lot of my work, my early work especially – was on how our our gut feelings, our intuitions, our automatic processing drives our conscious reasoning. And you can see this so clearly in your opponents. Whatever side you're on, you listen to them explain some contradiction and you know they're making it up. They're just saying whatever they need to do to justify what they're committed to. So we can see that in everybody else, but then, of course, they see it in us. Mm, so good. so in all of us, our, our our heart, as it were, tends to drive our, our thinking, but it doesn't have to be that way. And and with practice and with the right supportive community, we can separate them. And so that's what I like in your motto is there's that tension. So open mind, and so you're saying you got to be open, you got to listen, but that doesn't mean you have to accept everything. The heart can still play a role in judgment, but it's not going to be closed. That would be crazy if you said open mind, closed heart, like— That would be nuts. Mm -hmm. So so that's the first thing. Um, And let's see. Um, And then let's see. So then the second thing is the importance of an open mind. So it depends on what game you're playing. This is something I'm really into now. It helps me analyze so much of what's going on. We're all playing multiple games at the same time. And um, if we go back 10, 15 years, you know, left and right didn't like each other. But there wasn't the sense that if our team lost an election, it was the end of the world. And so it was upsetting, but we didn't demonize the other side as much. Well, if that's the case, it's possible to sometimes play the politics game where I'm fighting you and my team's fighting you, and we we will twist the truth, we'll do whatever it takes to get an advantage, a rhetorical advantage. We'll frame things, we'll use words in a manipulative way in order to win. Uh, so that's a game that we can always play. Um, and then there are other games, which are you can actually meet someone and, and form a relationship. The get-to-know-you game. There's the learning game. Like, oh, tell me something I don't know about. Uh, oh, you're an expert in something. Oh, tell me about that. Uh, and here we are at New York University. The game we're supposed to be playing is the learning game. That's supposed to be our number one game. And what's happened— especially in the last five years, what's happened is as the cross-partisan hatred is ramped up, and there's all kinds of graphs. Uh, We've got some in my books, and they're all over the net. The the, um, uh, Pew surveys has great graphics on this. Um, Cross-partisan hatred, the degree to which we hate the other side, was actually pretty stable in the 70s, 80s, and all the way into the 90s. It's only in the early 2000s that the graphs start going up and up and up, the degree to which you hate the other side. and as that's happened to us it's much much harder to play the learning game or the get to know you game and the politics game the warfare game us versus you know us versus them that has come to dominate everything it's spreading out not it's you know it's one thing in the public square when you've got protests and counter protests of course it belongs there that's fine But it's spreading into school. It's spreading down into um, high schools. Uh, It's spreading down. I I just got a memo from my daughter's elementary school. They're going to be doing what they call health class, but it's basically social justice programming. Now, you know, I want my kids to be exposed to diversity of views. But if it's only going to be ideology of the left, and this is in health class for fifth graders, like that's not appropriate. You know, Let's leave the kids out of the culture war. Um, And that's part of why it gets so ramped up is because the right sees the left taking whatever opportunities it can take to indoctrinate. And the left sees the right taking over, certainly in politics and Congress and the Supreme Court. So each side is struggling to dominate and destroy the other side. That's where we are. We can't learn, can't form relationships. All we can do is fight. And we're in big trouble.
1: Man, one of the points that you just brought up goes back to how I say each person should process information versus how they process information. And so the first way that I believe currently the the model today is the lawyer approach. Yeah. And when you're a lawyer and you're defending a client, your job is not to find out what's true and what's not true. Your job is simply to... Hammer down mm-hmm. and to justify your point. Yep. And don't to give do, an inch. Don't give an inch and to do whatever you can in your power to prove to your opponent and to prove to the peers, which is the jury. That's right. That's the key point. Mm-hmm. Now we're proven to the peers. Exactly. That's
0: the really, and that's what's changed is that the degree to which we're speaking to an audience has multiplied tenfold, a hundredfold, because of social media. That's, I think, why things are going haywire now.
1: Yes, and even to that point, um, a comedian friend of mine actually said, I think he said he was on a podcast with you named Andrew Schultz. Sounds, oh, yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, but he, one of his points was that a lot of times it's like when you were a kid and if something happened to you with you and another friend, it was a mildly, let's say you got in an argument, mm-hmm. it was a mildly, you know, mm-hmm. Difficult situation, but then that happened in front of a crowd, and everybody was like, "Ooh, he said that to you." Now all of a sudden, now that social anxiety kicks in, and now you have to really justify yourself and kind of prove to yourself Mm -hmm. to your opponent. That's right. And so, the the second way which people are supposed to learn is more of a judge, and the job Mm -hmm. of a judge is as fairly as and as unbiasedly Mm -hmm. and as objectively as possible to hear both sides Mm -hmm. and to be able to use their discernment, their wisdom to determine what's best case. To own best or what's wrong, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, like you said, we're not willing to do it. Yeah. Like so many people are, it's like a like you said, it's like a war. It seems like a civil war of ideas, mm-hmm. in which not only is the job to re, not to listen to the other side, but it's also to dominate and to just quench them on yeah. both
0: aisles of That's the party. Right. That's right. Tell me how old your your viewership generally is. Mostly people in the twenties, thirties, for like what uh, probably Teens?
1: between um, late twenties, early thirties. Okay
0: um because one of the most important games that or things that people need to do is is learn and <clears throat> um something i'm seeing a lot among among kids and teenagers um is th- to the degree that you're on social media for example the degree to which you're being judged and held accountable um you you have to display you have to uh show your virtues you have to show what team you're on sort of display your gang signs in a sense and that means you don't get a chance to really do learning, to do back and forth. It's, so everything's about display. And when we do that, um, we're depriving kids of growth opportunities. So let me just put put on the table here the most exciting concept that I've learned in the last few years. It's called anti-fragility. So this is a, a word made up by Nassim Taleb. So if you read the, the College of the American Mind, this is chapter one. This is the, the central idea, most important idea. Um, so the key idea is that Many things in this world are fragile. And if something's fragile, you have to protect it from breaking. And if you drop a glass, it breaks. Nothing good happens. Um, so we give kids plastic cups because they're not fragile. If a kid drops a plastic cup, it doesn't break, but it doesn't get better. And Taleb, the guy who wrote The Black Swan, he he's thinking about systems that actually have to get dropped, systems that don't get strong unless they get dropped multiple times. And so the immune system is the best example. Your immune system has to be exposed to dirt and germs and peanuts, for example. If you're not exposed to peanuts, you might develop a peanut allergy. But it turns out if you give kids peanut dust or peanut powder, then they don't. their body learns, this is a thing I need to deal with, and then it deals with it, and then you don't have an allergy anymore. Um, and when we began overprotecting kids, especially in the 1990s, protecting them from peanuts, now so many kids have a peanut allergy. So if you look at life this way, and if you look at not just your immune system, but you look at your mind, your mind is anti-fragile. And if you're growing up, if you're a teenager, if you're in your 20s, and somebody, you know, so if you you interviewed Ben Shapiro, that's great. If someone on the left says, Ben Shapiro, I heard he's a racist or something like that. Or I heard bad things about him. Um, and said, I won't listen to him. What you're doing is you're protecting yourself from peanuts. You're protecting yourself from people who disagree with you. I mean, Ben is an incredibly smart guy. He speaks faster than anyone I've ever met. But, I know. <laughs> he, but he sure is going to give you arguments for a conservative view backed up with, with some kind of evidence. And so whether you believe—oh, this is a perfect example. Open mind, discerning heart. It doesn't mean that you have to side with him or accept him, but, man, will he help you get smarter if you're on the left. And similarly, if you're on the right, don't go like— reading like far left people who are spouting nonsense, you know, read more center left people who are making a good, strong, solid case uh, for why we do need government intervention in the economy, why we need guardrails, why we need redistribution, or at least rethinking capitalism. So, you know, that's really what happened to me was, because i set out to read different views I, I started saying like oh wow well that that makes sense and, and and so does that and so does wow okay how do you put them together and that's what's fun about ideas is you 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 play with them and they don't fit quite right but then you think about it more and finally you get it to work out so so i think this is one of the most important ideas i i hope i can give to your viewers um is you can't get smart without other people you can't get smart without being exposed to challenges your your mind is anti-fragile.
1: Don't treat it like it's fragile. Mm. So what you just said reminded me of a really, really fascinating film that I saw. And I, before I get into that film, I want to answer um, something that you said previously. What we need in society is a balance. And the balance, like you said, is a balance of the conservative keep of keep the good of old mm-hmm. and the uh, liberal, you know, re, like find what is new and mm-hmm. better. So like the Taoists talk about the yin yang. Yeah, that's right. The order right. chaos. Mm-hmm. That and the beauty of life is the balance, right? Obviously one, too far right then you have, you know, extremists in one group and yeah. too far left you have an extremist in yeah. another group. But mm-hmm. one thing that you've noticed is that I would argue and you're way better history than I have, historically speaking, what happened in the let's say 17th through 19th century was you had a heavy leaning towards more right-leaning ideologies mm-hmm. as well as the immediate consequences of right-leaning ideologies mm-hmm. and to me it's like that the the archetype of the worst kind of father which is the yeah. overbearing father yeah. so that was what was apparent mm-hmm. in society we saw the overbearing father we saw the wars we saw you know we saw the raping and the pillaging and the and the slavery we saw all these things that are a byproduct of leaning all towards one direction not having a healthy balance of the fresh newness of chaos which exposes bad ideas but on the flip side going into the 20th to 21st century now you have the pendulum being shifted to which is the second archetype which is a more devouring mother archetype mm-hmm. and there was a fascinating film that talked about this devouring mother archetype um, um it was at the beginning of the incredibles movie and oh, it, uh, which, did you ever yeah. see it
0: oh i love the incredibles yeah you mean the uh, new one or the, yeah, the original new one so Tell me if I saw it. how does it
1: open? Me how so it opens. the movie picks up where the second one left mm-hmm. off, but before the film there was a Japanese short about the devouring mother. Oh I didn't see that. Either. Oh man, you would love it. It's exceptional. Without without ruining it too much, it was basically a woman who wanted a child so badly. And because she wanted a child so badly, you know, the Somebody granted a wish, and one of her um, rice cakes became a child. Mm, so wow, she had a rice okay. cake who was a child, and she loved the child, and she took care of the child, and they, she was happy, finally happy she had mm-hmm. her child. But then the child started to grow up, and the child started to make friends, mm-hmm. and the child started to meet women. And then one day, the child tells her, I'm about to leave. Mm. And she's like, you can't leave me. Huh. And then it gets to a point where right before the child's about to leave and they were tussling over a suitcase, she grabs them and eats them.
0: Oh, Oh my. And this is the beginning of The Incredibles. This well, was the short that yes, precedes yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, wow. not only Pixar in theaters, is though. taking some risks here. <laughs> yeah. Wow.
1: But but basically, that concept, as you know, is a concept of the devouring mother. It's like to keep you safe from the outside oh, world. I'd rather yeah. keep you yeah. inside. Oh. But by doing so, Ooh, yeah. We're overprotecting over-protect and it and ultimately kill it. Killing. And you kill it yeah, by making that's right. it weak.
0: That's that's right. That's right. That's, and that's, I love that's very powerful. that
1: concept that you yeah. talk about is what, what has happened yeah. in modern American society. Okay, so let me take what you said and just shift
0: it a little bit. So you said we need a balance, and then you said yin-yang. And I've written things like that before, but I've sort of complexified maybe a little bit, which is this. So in in biology, when I was in high school, we learned about homeostasis, the body's trying to maintain a constant level. Uh, But then when I was in graduate school, I learned about a more advanced concept of, of, of metabolism called allostatic load. The idea is your body is... We've got all kinds of systems in our body. One pushes our heart rate up, one pushes it down. So the sympathetic the sympathetic nervous system pushes your heart rate up, breathing rate up, parasympathetic pushes it down. Over and over again, we've got opposing muscle groups. We've got all kinds of forces pushing in opposite directions. And in a sense, they're always pushing, but they reach a shifting balance point. They're not trying to reach an even equilibrium point. They're trying to reach a point that is useful for the situation at hand. So I would say that in the 19th century, as, as the Industrial Revolution was proceeding, as we began getting giant corporations, railroads, oil companies, it's not so much that American society, for example, tilted far right. I'm not sure, maybe you could say that, but I think it would be better to say we saw rising concentrations of power in the economy. And who has an answer for that? Not the right. Conservatives don't have an answer for how do you knock down concentrated power. The left is the expert in that. So the late 19th century, the progressive year was a time when we needed the wisdom of the left more and the progressive movement flourished. Changed. We got all the you know, the antitrust legislation. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican, but he was a progressive. Um, and boy, did we need that again in the 1930s in response to the depression. So I would say that the the left has wisdom that is often called for when you get rising concentrations of power, as we have now, with enormously increasing returns to the top 10th of 1%, um, so in that sense, I think the, the economic debate in America with Elizabeth Warren leading it is very healthy. We need to be talking about that. Um, conversely, at times when we're tearing things down, as we are now and as we, we were doing in the 60s and at other times, um, we, t- for example, even tearing down things like the family and marriage. Well, it turns out the best way to raise kids is with stability and if you if if you do anything that uh, that weakens the family, and you have more kids being raised with a succession of men coming through, that's really terrible for them. And conservatives are the voice of wisdom. About, hold on, hold on! Don't tear everything down. What was good about the past? What have we learned by hard experience? And so there are times when conservative wisdom is called for too. So I agree with your general approach, but I wouldn't say it's a balance. I would say we need a, a creative tension which can can move and evolve based on the needs of the moment. Now, you know each side has a different view of the needs for the moment, but, but a healthy political system would allow that to happen. We do not have a healthy political system. We have a messed up system structurally and functionally with all kinds of ridiculous things about the way we vote, about gerrymandering, about limited hours for elections with long lines. So our whole electoral system is messed up, Congress is messed up, and our culture of discourse which is supposed to be democratic debate and discussion, is messed up for exactly the reasons you say, that we can't, we can't listen to each other anymore. So we're in big trouble as a
1: country. We don't have that creative tension. We've got just open war. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. And I definitely do agree. If I, if I use the word far right, I guess this is where I want to jump into next, because I guess I'm using the word right less politically, Mm -hmm. and more so in regards to more traditional masculine values. And so in regards to—correct me if I'm wrong, Yang is masculine Yang. I can't remember which, whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So so basically, um, one of the ideas is that a lot of the values today, Mm -hmm. historically— Values today were historically considered feminine values. So there's a really yeah. fascinating book um, that I, I read a long time ago called Why Men Hate, Hate Going to Church. Mm-hmm. And what they do is that they they, they expose like um, two sets of value systems from the one of the really popular book from the 70s or 80s, I believe. Men uh, men are from Mars, women are from yeah, Venus. Right, yeah. So basically, the author of that book posed like two sets of values: mm-hmm. Mars values and Venus values. We yeah. were typically masculine values and feminine yeah, values. Right. And so what you see is that like I said going back to the more masculine values, it's obvious mm-hmm. when masculine values go too far. You mm-hmm. know, the abusive yeah. father, you know, yeah. the the throw the yeah, bomb actual on violence. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. the more feminine values going too far, it's it's yeah. a little bit different. And it's not as easily as a parent, but it's still like you said is wrong mm-hmm. because we need that consci- that that like you said that yeah. that what, what word do you use
0: to describe it? Creative tension, Creative a, tension. a shifting balance point. That's yeah. right. Yeah, no, that's right. I think masculine and feminine is a good example. Left and right, old and new, east and west, there are all kinds of good examples. On the masculine and feminine front, I think it depends in part of the institution you're talking about. You, you can talk about American culture overall, and I think you can say that, well, for one thing, a historical generalization would be that any society, like if it's on the plains and it's and it's always subject to military invasion from its neighbors, that tends to have more of a masculine honor culture, military culture. That's what was essential for guarding off. Masculine virtues are a lot better if you're under constant attack. Whereas what I learned from reading a lot of anthropology is that when you have small island uh, societies where there really is no risk of attack, you tend to have more matriarchy, you tend to have more feminine values. And in the same way, Um, As life has gotten safer and easier in the West, uh, and as war has really declined—and Steve Pinker has written two brilliant books on this, on the long-term decline of war and all kinds of threat and racism by most measures and all sorts of things are—objectively speaking, bad things are going down, good things are going up. And in those cases, I I understand why there would be a shift away from masculine values toward feminine. But as part of our culture war— in certain institutions, I mean the academy, so in universities, in the education world – Which, especially the education world, K twelve, tends to be much more feminine in terms of the people who go into it. That's just there are all kinds of reasons why different genders make different career choices. Um, But we are seeing this interesting thing happening where, um, in psychology, the the American Psychological Association recently put out a report on toxic masculinity. Um, What we think of as as masculinity, even fairly good forms of masculinity, is often painted as being toxic bad. We have to teach kids, especially boys, to not do that. And so even virtues like self-reliance, taking personal responsibility, uh, uh, being able to show some toughness, um, these are sometimes turned into vices. And I think this is not good for kids, uh, certainly not boys. And I wonder if it's, it might even be
1: harmful for girls. No, that's really good. So what's, so I'm actually working on a video in which when people use the word toxic masculinity, what toxic means is unhealthy, right? Mm-hmm. So it's right. An unhealthy yeah. expression of masculinity. Yeah. I think the issue is when you throw the baby out with the bathwater and assume that masculinity of it, in and of itself, mm-hmm. is toxic. When an extreme expression of masculinity is unhealthy mm-hmm. and by nature toxic, mm-hmm. on the same way, but with femininity there is an unhealthy expression mm-hmm. of femininity and an unhealthy expression is toxic but like you like you said it's not as apparent in today's mm-hmm. society but one of the questions i want to ask you and then this might be a long question so if if i if i confuse you i'll mm-hmm. restate okay. it <laughs> but one of the things that we we're seeing is that we're seeing a rise in Women's success, which is a beautiful, mm-hmm. amazing great. thing. Yeah. Women are advancing in their career yep. fields. Women advancing in science and politics. All mm-hmm. these great advances. But one thing that we're seeing in certain some areas is men falling behind. And the easiest yeah. example of that is academia. Oh yeah, academia. And I think since
0: the 1990s, men have been falling out of the workplace. Exactly. Doing bad in school. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And then you know, and so one of the challenges yeah. is that if we have a society where most women are heterosexual and most heterosexual women want masculine mm-hmm. men yeah. but if the men are becoming feminized yeah. and the men are not walking in their masculinity and by walking in masculinity is like being on purpose and having mm-hmm. jobs and having mm-hmm. responsibility and, and having the ability to be self-reliant yeah. what we're seeing is that if if we have a society where the women are consistently advancing mm-hmm. but the men are going down there's yeah. going to be a lack of balance for one of the main mm-hmm. reasons that the women won't want the men uh-huh. and what a lot of different sociologists were anthropologists were telling me was that in a society yeah. where men are incompetent <laughs> you now have a disparity because now a lot of single parent households will be will come right. about because the women really wouldn't want a pair bond with incompetent yeah. men
0: no that, that I think that's right um so I mean this yeah it gets us into all kinds of different issues um you know I I Personally, believe that evolutionary psychology is very useful in the social sciences. Um, um, you know, I think the evidence that prenatal hormones affect brains and gender is affected by prenatal hormones, and men and women. Um, I used to give lectures on this at the University of Virginia when I was a professor there. Um, Um, sex differences in ability are very small between men and women but sex differences in interest and enjoyment are really big and you can see it in little kids and it's all the way through life and so I think that there are some important average differences so I think what we can all agree on left, right, center, everybody is that barriers to equal opportunity are bad and should come down and so to the extent that women were excluded from careers and those barriers are gone that's great Um, and uh, and then there's some, a difference of opinion, left right, as to whether equality is the right outcome, equality of representation. Um, if a field is less than fifty percent female, is that wrong? Is that a problem? Um, and uh, so that's where there de- definitely is uh, where there definitely is debate. But to get back to your your central your central point, um, as I said before. One thing that we know in the social sciences, studies of poverty and and income mobility, um, are that kids who are born into a stable environment tend to do better on almost all measures. And there is some debate as to whether cohabiting parents are just as good as married parents. And if they could literally stay together for life... Probably they would be just as good. But if you don't have marriage, you don't lock people together, it tends to break up more. So marriage tends to be very good for kids. And if you look at differences in populations and ethnic groups by marriage, uh, you know those that have high rates of marriage are doing well and those that have low rates are doing less well. So um, I, I was part of a team. Uh, I brought together, I was because I'm a non-political, I'm, I'm a centrist, I, I ended up chairing a, um, a, a group of poverty experts from the left and the right And we worked together for a year to write a report on what efforts, what programs actually work. What do we know from the research actually works to lift people out of poverty? And the two really big ones, two really big ones are long-acting reversible contraception. That breaks the cycle of poverty. Uh, But the people on the right didn't want to endorse that. They didn't want to be on paper endorsing birth control. And the other one is marriage. But the people on the left were afraid to endorse that because are we excluding gay people? Although by this time, gay marriage was already legal. But the left has sometimes had a problem with marriage. And so it was a great example of how you actually need both sides. We were able to reach a compromise that really what we really need is delayed responsible parenting. Kids do really well when people don't have kids early and before they can support kids. All right. So again, back to your question. Um as women have been doing better and better, and that's great, very few people would be opposed to that. Uh, ideally, boys and men would also be doing better, or at least not falling behind. And what we've seen in terms of entering the labor force, as women's uh, participation in the labor force has been going up and up and up, um, men's has been going down. We have many more men dropping out. There are a lot of reasons for this. Video games get better. Pornography gets better. You know, I'm even a little facetious, but the fear is that in the future, A lot of men, um, if they have a choice between working a low-wage job and just playing video games and, and living in their parents' basement or living off a UBI, universal basic income, a lot of men, I think, are going to take that option. And when that happens, when that happens, because women generally want to marry up, they want a man they can respect. They want a man who has at least as much education and resources as they do. This is on average, on average, on average. And if you look at dating sites, women are more attracted to men who are successful, and men don't care that much about the woman's success. They're attracted to women who are beautiful. That's a well-studied difference in in dating and mating. Um, so, yeah, we are, we are facing trends in which women increasingly are going to have trouble and are having trouble finding a man worth marrying. Um, and as technology allows them to have kids on their own, which, again, a good thing to people should have opportunities. I think we are going to see
1: a continued decline of marriage and this is going to have continued problems for kids. So what do you think are some of the solutions to help some of these young boys with such a draw to video games, to the pornography Mm -hmm. and all these things? What can we do as a society to help support them, to actually help lift them up as well?
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, there's. So I'm not an expert in that, but I've come across a few things I think would be helpful. Um, So for one thing, uh, so, in my book *The Coddling of the American Mind* with Greg Lukianoff, we have a whole chapter on play and the importance of play. All kids need rough and tumble play. All mammals do. Kittens, puppies—you know—all mammals play when they're young, and kids learn so much from play. You learn how to, you learn teamwork, you learn how to control your aggression, um, you learn how to settle disputes. So, the more kids have have outdoor, unsupervised, rough and tumble play, the more they learn, the healthier they get. That's been declining for a long time, in part because we've gotten so scared that our kids will be abducted, which was never true. There's almost no abduction in this country, um, in part because electronic entertainments have gotten better and better. And this predates the iPhone, but man, the iPhone has put it right there. You know, The, the touchscreen technology is just so compelling to kids. Uh, when my son was two and I got my first iPhone, the fact that he was able to master it at the age of two – why didn't I sell everything I owned and put it all in Apple stock at the time? I would have been very rich <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. if I'd done that. Um, so I do think that you know the research on video games is complicated. I don't want to say that video games are necessarily a, a problem for boys, but I think the degree, the number of hours played, pushes out other activities. So delaying that, giving them more play time, um, we've ramped up schooling and schooling pressures even early. So I think we need to make childhood more conducive, childhood and early school in K through. Five or six, at least, much more conducive to boys. That's something I think we really need to do to improve their educational outcomes. Um, In terms of employment, um, I think uh, there's some research on the value of internships and apprenticeships, rather. Apprenticeships teach boys trades and skills. Um, As the economy shifts away from manufacturing and towards services, Women have an advantage. Women are more socially, more skilled generally at interpersonal relationships. Men are more skilled generally at physical uh, labor and at um, sort of machines thinking about things. So men are at a disadvantage in that way. Uh, but apprenticeships is a, pro, Is a there's some research showing that that's a good way to help boys and men make the jump from education into, into the workforce. Um, you know, there's been so much attention to um, to women and whether schools were failing women in the '90s. I think we just need to even it up and just stop talking about men and women. But just like kids, let's, you know, where where are their problems? We've just got to help. Um, help all kinds of populations that are not making the adjustment into this new economy.
1: No, that's great. I remember The Atlantic did an article um, about the, the the issues with the, the education system in regards to um, higher, higher learning when it comes to the equality of mm-hmm. male-female yeah. um, breakdown. And one of the points it brought up was in... I might be butchering this data, but in the 1950s, they realized that the average university was about 58 percent male and about 42 percent women. And at that time, it was a crisis. There was an issue. There was not equal representation of women. You know, feminist organizations were arguing the lack of equality. And so a lot of the resources and support then went into helping women Mm -hmm. now go into school, which is an amazing, exceptional thing. But here's the problem. Now when that data is now flipped, yep. where the exactly average university right. is 58% women, 42% men, yeah. if, we're, if we're arguing for equality yeah. and symmetry across the genders, mm-hmm. now we need to put that same energy we put in the yeah. 50s and 60s and 70s into helping the women, into now helping, mm-hmm. to, to helping the young yeah. men. But what I've noticed is unfortunately when people are so bogged down with their political ideologies, yeah. it's not about helping humanity no, and, right. and servicing exactly. one another.
0: That's right. If so th- so this is so I think part of what's come in, and this is the... So in The, in the Codling of the American Mind, Greg Lukianoff and I talk about three great untruths. And so the first is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, and that was the anti-fragility we talked about. The second is always trust your feelings, which we didn't talk about, but that's, you know, instead of critical... Fi- actually, we did in a sense. Critical, critical reasoning, critical thinking. You know, you can not like somebody, but that doesn't mean that you should say, well, therefore, they're bad. So um, more critical thinking, more separation. Of head and heart, for example, and the third is life is a battle between good people and evil people. This is the third of the three terrible ideas, and it's the most damaging. And this is what I'm seeing in the educational world is a lot in a lot of places. Is is if you think about education in terms of like helping kids develop their potential, well, that's great. But if you look at everything as a battle between groups, and you know, if, if men are dominating women, men are oppressing women, and you talk about structural sexism, well, okay, there could be a structural sexism. There could well be. But you can't just say, oh, well, you know, if, if there's more men than women, then it's structural sexism. You can't say that. That makes no sense. You have to look at the input stream. You have to look at, at the pipeline. You have to look at, are there obstacles that women face that men don't face? And sometimes there are, especially, say, I'm a professor. Getting tenure Happens for the work you do in your 20s and early 30s, and and we've come to realize, well, it's harder for women because they're mostly having children in that age, so we have to adjust the tenure clock. So that's an example of what you might call structural sexism. Not it wasn't imposed for sexist reasons. It was sort of accidental, an accidental obstacle for women, and we're working on it. We've made it easier, somewhat easier. Okay, but now in K through 12 and all the way into university, now women are women get. Most of the, by far the majority of the bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and PhDs, women are dominating in universities. Should we now reverse that and say, oh my God, universities are structurally sexist? We have to, you know, we have to reverse that. If you see life as a battle between men who are the oppressors and women who are the victims, well, then you see nothing wrong with that. You say, what's well, about time? Those men deserve it. They've been oppressing women for so long. They deserve to be oppressed. But these are kids. These are individuals who are not guilty of anything. So this us versus them, life is a battle between good groups and evil groups. This is craziness in a multi-ethnic secular democracy for us to promote this group versus group thinking. This is going to destroy
1: us. Yeah, one of the points I, I shared was um, the power seat corrupts all who sits on it. And Basically, that concept is built upon what people have failed to recognize historically is in more hunter-gatherer societies, the advantage went to men because usually when it comes to just physical war and not just guns usually the men were more equipped for war and fighting and things like that so naturally the power gravitate towards men and so obviously there's going to be men who are doing predominantly more of the bad because Mm -hmm. if whoever has the power makes the rules and then Mm -hmm. they can oppress those who they want to oppress and so if but the issue is that if you take a, any other human whether that's a male mm-hmm. or a female or let's say a female put them in that same seat with that power mm-hmm. they could also do the same evil doesn't necessarily mean mm-hmm. that the gender itself is evil but let's say that mm-hmm. an individual who doesn't have the best morals or values put in that position is now going to experience these issues mm-hmm. so to your point, a lot of people look at, oh, it was the white people who were Mm -hmm. bad, and it's them being bad, which is fundamentally Mm -hmm. racist, or it's Mm -hmm. the men who are bad, which is fundamentally sexist, or the Christians who are Mm -hmm. bad, you know? Like, all these things, they now equate to a character to a character, um, a mm-hmm. character type or a phenotype that uh, that exists, but it has nothing to do with that. It yeah. is of itself it has sure. everything to do with you take anybody and you put them in that yeah. position and they're going to do this. But, beautiful,
0: you know? that's absolutely beautiful. That is the, one of the core insights of social psychology. So, in social psychology, our most important experiment is the Milgram experiment, the Stanley Milgram experiment, where. Stanley Milgram was basically trying to model the Holocaust. And how did the Germans do this? Is it because Germans are evil people? And he created a lab situation in which random men were brought into the lab. And when they were given the role of of shocking the victim, um, most of them went all the way to the point where it seemed as though they had killed the person. So in social psychology, we're very good at recognizing the power of the situation. And to your point, you know, if you look at the history of race in America, my God, I mean, you know what so I was so fortunate to be able to I was invited to go on John, congressman John Lewis does an annual pilgrimage to the civil rights sites and he brings along a bunch of Congress people and, and others and I was lucky last April to be one of the others and one of the most powerful with the day in um, uh, the day in uh, Montgomery the day in um, you know the, the you know the lynching memorial and, and Brian Stevenson's uh, museum um, uh, and we heard all kinds of talks, and one of the things I think it was, was it Ruby Sales. I can't remember who it was. It was somebody who was a, uh, there in the civil rights movement when she was young. She said, "You know, Jim Crow and slavery and Jim Crow. It didn't just. It didn't just warp black people. It really warped white people. And if you if you're born into a society in which your skin color gives you the right to lord it over others, I mean that's that's terrible. But it warps your soul. It changes you. And so." This is so. What I think we need to do to get past is I came home from that. I came home from that weekend deeply moved, and you know, in a I mean, I can say in a little sense I'm woke in the sense that I now see the pervasiveness, the degree to which being black in America is so different from say being I'm Jewish. Like, you know, being Jewish and having the Holocaust in my memory is very powerful. But man, that was far away. Uh, one time, you know, not one time, but I mean, it's you know, everything about the Holocaust makes me love being American more. Whereas the black experience is very, very different, so I, I I see things that I didn't see before, and I'm much more sympathetic. Um, but I didn't come back saying, "Well, now we have to like enact all these all these programs that are talked about." My my view as a social psychologist was, "Wow, we've really got to figure out what works, and and we've got to do research on this, and we've got to demoralize it, strip out the moral judgment." Say we have a national emergency here about well, we have a we have a, a a national obligation. We have a national duty to fix this, to get this right, and we're not going to do it if we come into it saying white people are bad, black people are good, the white people owe the black people. Well, if you think about that, boy, is that going to just produce a counterreaction, all kinds of unproductive, you know, uh, you know, rep, like direct reparations ideas that are going to just blow up that, that would backfire. But I think that what we owe, what we owe as a country, is to fix. Hundreds of years of cruelty, of crime—you can say—to fix it, and so some of the ideas about well, what can we do? What can we do that would give Black Americans a bigger stake in the economy? It would help them build wealth, because you know, and and here at Tennessee Coates and the documenting how this wasn't just. Fifty years ago, this was even more recently. You know, that black homeowners were cheated out of their homes. So we have an obligation to help black Americans be more successful in the economy, home start a business, get you know get their kids into a good college. So, so solutions or, or, or reparations proposals that that go in that way, I think, are great, and I support those. Uh, but those that are moralistic, like the bad race oppressed the good race and therefore they have to pay money and like wait a second my ancestors didn't have slaves my ancestors were being raped and killed in eastern europe what, what you know so we're going to be completely incoherent and divided if we go with a moralistic reparations program but if we strip it for the morality and say what would work in this difficult
1: challenge then i think we can make progress did you read gun germs and seal
0: long ago i remember i read parts
1: of yeah. it yeah so i mean if you guys have couple weeks of your life. (laughs) It's a very heavy book, but I just absolutely love that concept of Guns, Germs, and Steel because it's really showing, like we said, how the situations really cause dissents. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of times, you know, we could always virtue signal, we can always do what you know, C.S. Lewis talks about, having chronological snobbery and to mm. look back at people Ooh, of the that's past. Good phrase, chronological you know, snobbery, yeah, okay. Yeah. Look back at people of the past and to simply look down upon them and to say, oh, I'm way better than them. I would have mm-hmm. never done that, but put in that situation, yeah. you definitely would have. Yeah. But the point that you're saying that really stands out to me is that If you genuinely care about the well-being of society, now it's no longer political. Mm -hmm. Because if you've noticed the way we've been talking today, we've talked Mm -hmm. about ideas that people on the right exposes, Mm -hmm. and we've talked about ideas that people on the left exposes. Yeah, I actually have no idea what your politics are from this conversation. Yeah, Yeah. and so that's the beauty of the conversation. Mm -hmm. The beauty of the conversation should be, like, it's two human adults Mm -hmm. looking for solutions to help society. Mm -hmm. And that's where, like, this all goes back to, like... We're tearing down each other so much mm-hmm. that now you're the enemy I'm the enemy and we're no longer able to really combat the enemy which are things like poverty mm-hmm. which are things like you know children you know dying of diseases you know things like cancer uh, really important yeah. things going on in today's society we're not able to combat them because we're too much we're doing too much infighting mm-hmm. and we're, and we're doing yeah. too much demonizing of the other. Yeah. And so I I am really thankful for your work and for your literature because you're trying to break down these barriers and to break down this you know this wall that's now being built up in American society between one group of people over another. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's right. And and so to take your metaphor that we 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 can't we can't find the solutions because we're we're fight, we're fighting we're um or, or you said something about the the we the real enemy is poverty. Even that is putting it and it's, I understand what you're saying, and i, I but but to put it like poverty is the enemy that takes like the the war mindset and puts it against poverty. I think a better way to do it would be to think about, have you ever played these, These, these it's called Escape the Room? Do you know these things? Yeah, Escape
1: Room. Escape Room, yeah, yeah. You know, you yeah, have
0: yeah. to, okay. So those are great because there's all these puzzles you have to solve and you, and you have to work together to solve them. It's very hard to solve them by just by one person. So in a sense, I think, you know, our society is a giant escape room and, you yeah, know, there's okay. one escape room in which rising inequality is going to kill us. There's another in which global warming is going to kill us. There's another one in which, you know, the, you know family chaos and, and the decline and the, basically the Decline of the uh, of the prospects of the lower half of the of the economic distribution. I mean, we have all these problems, and we go into the escape room and we just start punching each other. <laughs> Nobody even looks at the clues, yep. and if anyone looks at the clue, it's only to say, "Well, here I'm going to throw this one at you because this is your fault." <laughs> yeah. Like, no. So we're never going to get out of the room, and I think that explains why we have so little that works. So, you know, I'm in a business school, and we study. You know, there's a lot of research on diversity and inclusion, and when companies have a have an ugly racial incident, what do they do? We don't have anything really to recommend. They all do um, implicit bias training, it seems. and
1: sensitivity training, things like that. That's right.
0: There are certain things that they do that are called best practices because everyone does them. But as far as I know, they don't have any research showing that they actually work. So most people hate diversity training. It's done for show. And we've been studying this for decades and decades. And what I think we need to do is actually do experiments and try lots of different things and see what works and then do that. You know, it sounds simple. The experiments would be hard, but we're not even really trying that. We're not really—we don't have a robust program of research that's really trying a variety of methods. So, um, so you know, again, I think the, the, the answer or the approach, I should say, is demoralize it and empiricize it. So first, stop the moral judgment. Just this is a puzzle. We're going to try to solve it. We're not going to blame people. We're just going to try to solve it. And that's the demoralize. And then empiricize is— We're not going to solve it by imposing our pre-existing ideological framework. We're going to try lots of things and see what works. That's the empirical method. So that's where I hope that universities can take the lead. And actually, this gives me a chance to bring up um, Heterodox Academy, an organization that I co-founded with about um, 15 other professors. Here's just our little logo, Heterodox Academy. If you go to heterodoxacademy.org, we have now over 3,000 professors, evenly balanced, it turns out, between left and right, who say, you know what, we actually need viewpoint diversity in order to do our work. We actually need people to critique dominant views in order to make those views more accurate. And nowhere is this more important than in the social sciences, but it's also important in the humanities and some of the sciences and just as an approach to life.
1: Well, no, I couldn't agree anymore. Well, Jonathan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show just the the wisdom that you're able to provide some of the messages that you're able to provide I hope our audience receive them if there's one last message that you would like to share to the audience in closing for individuals who mm-hmm. let's say they're a little more closed minded you know they're they're doing a lot of infighting they're not they you know they're wrestling with i want to be mm-hmm. tricked by the other side. I don't yeah. want to give them. I don't want to give an inch in this battle. Mm-hmm. What would be your message to individuals like those who are not fully on board with you know learning and solving this puzzle together? Yeah,
0: well, I would say actually the 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 key is to is to start with your heart and and if you just read any portion of the Sermon on the Mount or you read Buddha or or Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, there's so much wisdom about how about how we're all so arrogant, overconfident. Um, We need to be more humble. We need to be more open. We need to be more loving. And it turns out, this isn't just like you should do it because it's the right thing. It turns out that if you do that, if you just chill out, step back, don't be so judgmental. What happens is you get freed from anger and hatred. You are able to see that things are more complicated than they were when you were full of hate. You find your relationships are better. You actually are able to make friends with more people. And ultimately, you actually get more smart and competent. And so, even if you just want, even if your goal is just to be successful in this life and get a good job and, and be successful, basic skills of cool it, cool down, moment of humility, let me listen to you, let's see if we can work this out, that turns out to be a key to success in life.
1: I love it, I love it, love it. So guys, make sure you guys reach out to Jonathan. You guys know how we get down the podcast. Jonathan, where can they find you after they want to reach you with a message? Uh,
0: well, so a lot of information at righteousmind.com. Uh, that's the website for my for my previous book. Um, the Coddling, oh, thecoddling.com is for the the more recent book, um, heterodoxacademy.org, especially if anybody listening is a professor or a graduate student. Um, and then you can find my homepage at Stern, which is actually jonathanheight.com. You can find contact information for me there.
1: Sounds good. Guys, so make sure you reach out to Jonathan. Let him know what about the podcast set out to you. My name is Arfiz, and I'm joined by Jonathan Hyde. And we are a roommates, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day, and be sure to share this message.
0: All right. Thank you.